So today we're going to play a video for you, a little bit out of the ordinary. This is a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago. But before we jump into the interview, I want to give you a little bit of context as it relates to our family so that some of the stories and some of the references that you're going to hear will make a little bit more sense. Mom and Dad are both celebrating birthdays this week. They are in their 54th year of marriage. Um, I have a brother, Drew, who's a couple years younger than me. We each have two kids, so our parents are the proud grandparents of three grandsons and a granddaughter, and they are great-grandparents to two, soon-to-be-three, great-grandchildren. This journey that we're going to talk with Dad about uh, hasn't been his alone. This was a family affair from the very beginning. Mom has always been a vital part of this team. So today when I'm talking with Dad, keep in mind that the story he's telling is largely Mom's story too. Dad's first pastorate was a little farming community outside of Moncton, New Brunswick called Corn Hill. He served there about a year and a half or two-ish years. In the fall of 1975, our family moved to the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia, where Dad pastored the Lower Granville United Baptist Pastorate, then later founded Habitation Baptist Church and Living Water Christian Academy. During his pastorate at Habitation, he took on a position with a company called Accelerated Christian Education, a Christian school organization based in Texas, eventually becoming their field rep for all of the maritime provinces, overseeing 42 Christian schools, conducting staff trainings, doing annual visits to each school, directing an annual uh, convention for high school students. And then uh, throughout his relationships or through his relationships with uh, the Christian school organization. In the fall of 1984, he accepted a position as associate pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Louisville, Texas. A few months into that role, he became the principal of Louisville Christian Academy and then became the interim pastor and eventually the senior pastor of that church. Then in the spring of 1989, he accepted the senior pastor at Ellsworth Baptist Temple in Ellsworth, Maine where he once again, in addition uh, to leading the church, assumed the leadership of the Christian school as well. Uh, three months into dad's pastorate there, the church brought me on as what they called the outreach coordinator, which was a catch-all position for uh, stuff that volunteers didn't want to do. And a couple years into that, my position transformed or transitioned into the youth pastor role. We served there together until the spring of 1997 uh, when we stepped out and launched Faith Community Fellowship. I remember pitching this idea to dad, and after lots of talks and various caveats, he said, I'll do this with you, but here's a non-negotiable. You and I are going to be equals in our leadership. And we weren't exactly sure how to do that or what it would look like, but we landed on the idea of co-pastors and kind of figured it out from there. So that's the flyover. Let's get into the conversation. So we should start this conversation talking about parenting, because that's how we first met each other. So I thought it'd be a good place to start. Right. Uh, so we, before we get into talking about kind of my experience as one of your sons and uh, really great dad you were and are, um, I think it's important for people to hear a little bit of your background. Give us a flyover. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Oh, well, uh, first year baby boomer. So that means uh, I fell into that category of people who wanted to, I guess, have everything all at once and uh, we're, we're still that way a little bit. Um, my dad served for six years in the in the Canadian Army and was overseas for five years during the war, Second War, so um, yeah he, um, he and I were close. My mother was closer to my brother because 
she was fending for him all the time my father was overseas. And so uh, my older brother and my dad um, didn't even see each other till uh, Paul was five years old, a little right. over. So that meant that I got a lot of attention after dad got home and um, that was interesting. So um, pretty, uh, for me, typical type of upbringing, but uh, for a lot of people, I guess, um, a little out of the ordinary, but I was a city boy. I was brought up in the middle of the city. We lived for all of my growing up years until I left home um, in a, a big brick building on the second story, uh, a small apartment, and um, that's where we were both raised, and that's where uh, I was all through my schooling years and so on, until I went to college mm -hmm. and then eventually got married. So. Um, but, you know, we had schools nearby, we had playgrounds, we had pools, we had um, ice skating rinks. Uh, I was close to the downtown. Uh, so I was kind of in the center of the city. I mean, I always had things to do or places to go. We had a nice neighborhood of people. Um, and uh, I have been able to keep in touch with a few of them over the years mm. from our childhood days. Mm. But, yeah. And, you know, a lot of it was alone. My brother was six years older, so I was kind of brought up as a loner, too, mm -hmm. in that sense. So a lot of days, i just go out in the middle of the street and throw the ball against the concrete wall and have my own little ball game. And uh, I liked those games because you could win all those. <laughs> and uh, none of them, were, some of them were rained out, but usually I'd stay out there. You're usually the hero. Yep. And then a little, uh, as I grew a little older, uh, my dad had a camp, like a hunting camp, that he really converted into a family cottage. Mm -hmm. And we used to spend a lot of time there. Mm -hmm. And after he retired even, we would go, as I'm sure you can remember, mm -hmm. as a family and spend a week or two and uh, do some fishing and uh, just relaxing. So, yeah, it was a good, it, it was a great childhood. Mm -hmm. and I don't think I'd have changed anything. And I love my mm -hmm. schools and mm -hmm. I'm still very attached to uh, my high school class, mm -hmm. uh, even now. Yeah. What role did church and faith play in your childhood? Huge. I have a picture somewhere of my mom and I standing on the sidewalk across from our church, mm -hmm. watching the excavators starting to dig the hole mm -hmm for a gymnasium mm -hmm. and youth center at mm -hmm. that church. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be back in the um, 50s, mm -hmm. probably late 50s. And um, I spent a mm -hmm. lot of my childhood mm -hmm. and teen years in that gymnasium, I'll tell you. Matter of fact, after mom and I were married and we had made some changes and things, um, I became the sports director part-time. Mm -hmm. Uh, at that church mm -hmm. and that's really where I got I think that's where I got the kind of the hunger for for ministry mm -hmm. I think one of the most important things that you taught me and drew growing up in our home was uh, the importance of respect with within our home and uh, and outside of it um, above all else respect was kind of that overarching rule in our household everything else kind of flowed from that. I don't think I understood that at the time, but looking back, I can see that that's kind of where it all came from. And I mean, anytime either, uh, either of us paid or us kids paid a price for bad behavior, it uh, usually found its way back to disrespect, um, either disrespect of each other or of property or 
of you or God forbid disrespecting mom, mm. right? Mm. So mm. that that value of respect carried down into my household, mm. my new household. That mm. uh, you know, when Lethe and I first got married, and we had Ben, and then Aaron, and it was going to be about respect. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely one of those values that you and mom um, instilled that I carried into adulthood and into the ethos of our nuclear family. So. Talk a little bit about where that value of respect came from for you. Mm. Well, like I said, I, I was brought up in the post-war era, and I think respect was still almost a natural thing mm. for people. And I had, and my dad especially, had many, many uh, good friends in business and in uh, lodge work and in church work, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't ever remember until I must have been well in my 20s ever calling one of those men by their first name. Mm -hmm. And I was just, it was just, it wasn't something harshly brought on to me. It mm -hmm. was just something, I guess, taught by example that this is Mr. Mm -hmm. Smith or this is Mr. Perry or this is, and some of them, it was years before I even knew they had a first <laughs> name. Mm -hmm. But uh, I never thought much about that. And I think, um, I've, I've said this to men in the past, I think the best way to build respect in your children is for you to show your wife, their mother, the highest respect you mm -hmm. can mm -hmm. and teach that and drill that into your children. Mm -hmm. and, and they'll go out in the world and, and, and they'll be respectful people. Let's talk a little bit about priorities. And I know, because I know you, that you say there's no such thing as priorities. It's singular. Uh, <laughs> but for sake of this question, here's what I'm getting at. Sure. I remember times, especially back in the Nova Scotia days, which is where, you know, Drew and I grew up. Mm. Um, you were leading a church that you founded. Uh, you were the principal of a school. Mm -hmm. You were teaching at least twice on, Sunday, on Sundays, twice on Sundays, sometimes three times if you were teaching Sunday school, uh, again on Wednesday night, and occasionally uh, on, at school chapel, middle of the week. Uh, you were traveling uh, all over the Maritimes to visit schools, Christian schools that were under your supervision. Uh, a lot of times preaching at their chapels or their Wednesday night services. Uh, you were visiting other churches doing presentations uh, about starting their own Christian school. Then you traveled across the country a couple times, literally starting in Alaska and preaching in every province, making your way east on these Christian school uh, conference tours. And yet you found a way to make us a priority. Um, like we played lots of sports outside. Mm -hmm. Some of those were, uh, I think, spinoffs of the version of the sports that you played on the street because we never had a full team. Right. So how do you play with three or four guys? We figured it out. Whatever was in season, we came up with a way to play the game. That's right. um, we had epic late night hockey games mm -hmm. out on the driveway. Um, where did that priority for you, where did that come from? It may have come from the fact that even though my parents were always supportive of things I did, they didn't take part. And I don't think, that isn't a criticism of my parents, that's just the way it was mm -hmm. in the culture then. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, Barbara would say the same thing. She was, she's the star athlete of the family, mm -hmm. truly. Mm -hmm. And uh, she played at a much higher level. And um, her parents never attended games. You know, parents right. and grandparents and great-grandparents today, man, they, right. don't, they don't even dare miss a, a part of a game. And I find it so, uh, so different. But um, 
I think maybe I was trying to make up for that with you and uh, because I played organized hockey, organized baseball, and I coached uh, those levels. And um, so those were, those were big things for me. The sports and athletics were, were, were really big mm -hmm. back then for and me. And we didn't really, growing up, or we did, we didn't really have those opportunities have of the, the organized mm -hmm. sports. No. So we organized it yeah. in the backyard. Right. Well, my best friend growing up, he and I would go to the playground some days when there was nothing going on, nobody around, school was out. And he and I could play a whole baseball game. Mm -hmm. Just, you know. Yes. Um, yep one against the other <laughs> and we had a ways of instead of hitting from the backstop to the outfield we would hit from second base to the backstop yeah and we had all kinds of ways of making the game up yes. and I'm sure other kids growing well, up in that era. I think kind of taught Drew and I how to do that. We played a game using our fireplace chimney yeah. on the outside you know as yeah. a way to exactly. as our backstop yes. Right and then I think that yeah. that rolled off on you in that when you uh, were starting to do the same thing with Ben and Aaron, they were playing a game mm -hmm. with a ball thrown <laughs> up on the roof and then catching roof it. Ball. I, I never yes. quite did get the uh, yeah the rules and regulations of that game, but it looked like a lot of fun. <laughs> they may have played it recently, but we won't <laughs> talk about that. We always took a family vacation. Mm. Of course, we did trips to Moncton couple times a year often like mm. to see grandparents and all that and it was only five hours away and we that was always a priority but in addition to that um, from the time I was 10 or so I remember taking like major family vacations we went to Toronto a couple times we went to Cape Breton we went to Disney a couple times yeah uh, we went to Newfoundland Newfoundland yeah where did that desire to travel come from I don't really no, no. Uh, again uh, we stayed close to home as a small family growing up none mm -hmm. of us traveled mm -hmm. I mean I remember one vacation that my dad took and it was a working vacation he was mm -hmm. the superintendent of a feed mill and he was visiting a couple of feed new feed mills here in New England mm -hmm. on our way down to Connecticut where his brother lives that would be my uncle and we spent a week more than a week, I think, probably close to two weeks at a lake in, um, mm -hmm. in Connecticut at, at a cottage. I got the worst sunburn I ever had in my life. I'm still feeling the effects of it. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that I can remember. But I can remember the, the trip. And we did that in um, the four of us, all big people, in an Austin. <laughs> it wasn't an Austin Mini, but it, by today's standards, it would almost be all the way from New Brunswick to Connecticut and back. And uh, I had, uh, I was prone to car sickness. Mm -hmm. uh, it's too bad my brother couldn't be here to tell that story. <laughs> He'd have a different perspective. Of the trip to Connecticut <laughs> yeah. and back, the poor guy. Anyway, dad, yeah. Bobby's gonna be sick. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's all I can remember hearing. Why did you uh, make the I'm sure financial sacrifices and if not sacrifices then for sure some financial planning to make sure that we got to travel mm. as kids. Why was that important to you? Yeah, I just think with all the things that you mentioned previously uh, that I was trying to keep all the different plates spinning, mm -hmm. um, I knew I needed time to invest in your social development mm -hmm. and you're seeing the world and getting to places that would be interesting mm -hmm. and just good for you. Plus mm -hmm. people were forever saying, well, you need to relax, you need to mm -hmm. take a vacation yeah. and so on. And I've never really 
come into the true definition of relax. I, I'm not sure what I that means. understand. So you've already told us you grew up in a blue-collar family, mm -hmm. um, second-floor apartment, downtown Moncton. Yeah. Um, I looked it up. When you were growing up, the population of greater Moncton was around 65,000. Okay. So that would be comparable to uh, Portland proper mm -hmm. yeah. today. Um, today, the population of greater Moncton is around 140,000. Growing up, you never lived in a house. Right. Right? Nope. Um, and when you say you lived in a downtown apartment, it wasn't a penthouse. No. No. I, I remember the apartment. Yes. Um, I spent uh, a lot of lunch times there in my first, uh, I think it was first grade, yes. walking a few blocks to Nanny's house for lunch. Yes, you did. In her pie. Um, mm -hmm. it wa but it wasn't luxury living. No. You didn't have a grassy yard to play in. Mm -mm. Um, your father eventually worked his way into management at the mm -hmm. feed mill. You did. Um, but it wasn't exactly upper middle class upbringing no um but i know the whole time that you've been in church ministry you've been extremely generous and um both in the way that you give to the church and in the way that you give to those in need in general um and you may not know this but i i think we've talked about this i distinctly remember uh, one occasion growing up when drew and i shared a bedroom on the back side of the house and the the walkway to the back door went right under our window and i remember one time mm. someone from just down the road stopped in needed money and I, it was i think it was for heating oil i can't say for sure all i know is that i was in the bedroom and i could hear the whole conversation happening i probably had my ear up to the window because that was my way um <laughs> but i doubt that the window was open but uh bottom line i remember you opening your wallet and giving him every literally everything you had in your wallet why do you suppose it is that someone who was raised with, without a, a lot of uh, excess, right, okay? Right. Came to be so generous. How do you think that happened for you? Well, while you yourself are making way less than average wage um, pastoring a church plant in rural Nova Scotia, how did you learn the value of generosity? By example, mm -hmm. um, you have stated so well, my parents were not rich people, they were not well-to-do, but they were very um, industrious. Mm -hmm. And my mother, I, I often refer to her as the lady uh, of the feeding of the 5,000 because she could take, you know, a couple loaves and a few fishes <laughs> and make a master meal out of what seemed to be nothing. And um, she was resourceful. and. I think their resourcefulness also led to their generosity. In every place that I've been privileged to pastor, I've been around people of great generosity. Mm -hmm. Very few of them uh, were people of means, mm. but people who would see a need and would just bend over backwards to meet the need, whether it was in our family, something in the church, a family in the church, or people that they didn't even know. Uh, and so it's just been something that has, um, I guess I've been around it so much and I want to be part of it. And I've always wanted to do more, which mm -hmm. many times I could, mm -hmm. but um, I, I don't consider myself a, a generous person, but you That's usually may the way see it. it. Is. Yeah, yes. you may see it a different way. Do, do you remember any a specific person or a specific kind of moment in time when you were challenged with that? 
To be generous? To be generous. Well, yes, I, I can remember situations where I, I just didn't know what to do, but I knew I had to do something. And so, uh, again, your mom and I would s sit and talk about it, and then we'd say, well, what would we be willing to give up? Mm -hmm. said, well, we could give up this and this mm -hmm. and make sure that they get what they need. We don't know exactly how much they need, but uh, I think this could help. And Let's talk a little bit about the people who've had the greatest influence on your ministry, like in the way that you approach leadership, the way that you approach pastoring, the way that you approach service to your congregations, even your preaching style, you know, what you, or maybe even what you ultimately hope to accomplish through your ministry as a pastor. Um, start with some of those earliest influences. Who were they? Uh, earliest influences obviously would be pastors who, you know, pastored the church that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite was a man by the name of Dr. Pike, and um, boy, could he preach. And, and I don't, I couldn't tell you, I was young then, mm -hmm. and I, I couldn't tell you um, what his philosophy of ministry was. I just knew that when he got behind the pulpit, we were going to really hear something that mm -hmm. caught your attention. And this is while you're growing up. This is why I'm growing up, yeah. and, and I'm young. And I loved his style and the fact that he used a lot of scripture and so on. Well, just fast forward, there were two or three probably other pastors in that church that did influence me as they were pastoring. Um, and then there was a man came to the church when I was grown up and married. Who uh, We'd only uh, <clears throat> been married a, a year or two uh, uh, by the name of Ernest Sparing, and Pastor Sparing uh, was the kindest, most loving, most generous man uh, I think I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And we fell in love with him, and it was mutual. And there was a small group of us, young adults, and we, you know, we go to church in the morning, we go to church at night, and after the evening service, We'd beg him at the church door, can we go to your house and you could teach us some more? And we'd go to his house and his wife would have a little lunch for us. And we'd sit there till 10 o'clock at night listening to the man just open the Bible and share with us. I mean, it, it was it was a small group. And we didn't know it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, but loving. Oh, you could meet the man. I remember my dad was very sick. He'd been in the hospital with heart issues and my mom was kind of beside herself she was at the grocery store one day just getting a few things all by herself and well, she bumped into the pastor and the pastor was asking about my dad and right there she said right at the produce aisle with people around she said leaning over the cucumbers he said let's pray mm -hmm. right now for mm -hmm. sam let's pray mm -hmm. for him and he prayed i mean that's the kind of pastoral it just oozed out of him. And I remember him. Yeah, you would. And I'm guessing probably everybody in the entire produce section was drawn probably. into that prayer, probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was uh, wonderful. Well, then, uh, getting into ministry itself, the one man is uh, Dr. Laurel Buckingham. You would expect me to say that. Yep. Um, he spent 44 years in the same church there in Moncton. It grew from 60 people to well over 3,000. And he is known around North America mm -hmm. as a church leader. Mm -hmm. I just have a love for him. 
he's been so gracious with his time over the years. I mm. mean, hardly a trip, like whether we were living in Nova mm. Scotia or Texas, Texas yeah. or here, mm -hmm. hardly a trip to Moncton, mm -hmm. but there's going to be a visit with Laura. And a lot of times it was a pop in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and You're he right. would make the time. He spent most of his time, you know, applauding you. Right. And, and talking about, well, what are you doing, Bob? And, oh, that's so exciting. And, oh, I'm glad to hear this. And when it, that's why we loved having him come to the churches because he would just, that enthusiasm would just mm -hmm. fire the people up. And it was so, sure. uh, not just entertaining, but it was in, an inspiration. So I don't think um, you probably think of this very often, but <laughs> something that I think is pretty cool is that there as I asked you about your influences, but there are several pastors um, around the country in, East, in Eastern Canada that if someone were to ask them who some of their greatest influences were, especially those who encouraged them to pursue a life of pastoral ministry, I can think of several of them in Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. in Texas, mm -hmm. in Idaho, mm -hmm. in Mississippi, in Indiana, that if they were asked that question, your name would be included. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, boys that Drew and I grew up with, mm -hmm. um, um, you were their first pastor. A mm -hmm. um, couple of my best friends from my first couple of years um, of college, you probably know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, I've included myself in that group, too. Mm -hmm. So to think of that, that these uh, men and women who had such an impact on you, that they had no idea. I mean, because we never really know what's at stake when, we are, mm -hmm. when it comes to our influence. Mm -hmm. But the idea that they had a voice in your life. And now you've had an opportunity to have a voice in so many lives, especially so many students back in the 80s and early 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And now some of those teenagers and college students have been pastoring churches for yeah. 25 or 30 years, mm -hmm. um, and they're having influence in the lives of people that you'll never meet. Um, I just think it's pretty amazing mm -hmm. and quite humbling, really. It is. Um, it is. I don't yeah. have a question. That was just a statement. Yeah, it is humbling, uh, and to see it, uh, kind of repeat itself yeah. and go from generation to generation. Um, it's uh, Again, we give God all the glory. Well, Dad isn't the only one celebrating a birthday this week. Uh, in fact, we're going to show this on Mom's birthday. Um, and I know it's rude to reveal a woman's age, so we're not going to talk about that. Just, just to say that you had already been in the hospital uh, a couple of days when the Crossweight baby uh, arrived in the same nursery uh, a couple of days later. So that's all we're going to say um, about that. In the early days of your marriage, Dad wasn't exactly on a typical track that anyone thought would end in him spending his life in pastoral ministry, right? Right. So without getting into details of that, Dad's told that story plenty of times. I think it's fair to say that Dad's life as a mid-20-something was about um, upward mobility, sometimes impressing people of influence and power, maybe even playing the role if necessary to achieve a certain image or a certain status or to make an impression on the right people. Is that a fair assessment? Okay. <laughs> I know there was a time that, um, you know, there where dad wasn't walking with the Lord, um, chasing that, a different kind of lifestyle, positioning himself for bigger opportunities, um, even accumulating things. But then the wheels kind of came off so I wonder if you would talk a little bit about the circumstances leading up to dad um, walking away from that and returning to his walk with the Lord. Okay. 
Um, I think it uh, began and when uh, the children, when you and your brother were really young, and I would we take them to church Sunday mornings, and then uh, had a new music pastor come in, and his wife, and anybody around here knows her as Bambi. Uh, we uh, formed a phenomenal friendship that's lasted 50-some years. But we went to prayer meeting one night, and with much trepidation, I was scared, but I stood up, and, I, and uh, my mother-in-law was there, and I asked for prayer for Bob because I knew he had, he just was living a, a life that I was not accustomed to. And so anyway, that following New Year's Eve, we all went to church together. And he just at that moment made the decision to follow the Lord. And from that moment on, it was a 180 degree turn. I mean, things in the house that <laughs> he liked to have, they were gone and uh, he just totally changed. Hmm. Yeah, and what, I wonder what led to, I'm sure there were opportunities that New Year's Eve to attend other parties mm -hmm. or yeah. to host a party mm -hmm. or whatever. So I wonder why, from your perspective, why he would have said yes to a New Year's Eve at church that year. All I can say is that, I mean, God was just really working in him. Mm. And it was no, there was no other, there were people that he would have known since he was a boy who might have been to this place where we were going. I don't even remember mm. for sure whether it was a youth activity or what, but um, that group young, adults. young adults, and he knew them yeah. this well. This is the church he grew up in. Yes, yeah. and uh, so, yeah, hmm. that was just. God was working behind the scenes oh, somewhere. absolutely. There were yeah. a lot of people praying. So those of us who know the story of dad's kind of turnaround, um, what gave you the confidence during that time period to just wait on God to change his heart? Probably just the, the my upbringing maybe. Mm. Um, my mom and dad just lived down the street. They were always there. Um, and I had people within the church that I grew up in with that were, knew him and were praying for him. And uh, I guess I still just think of it now, you just do one day at a time. Mm and trust God to look after the situations. Mm -hmm. If we start trying to plan it in our own head how it's going to happen, it doesn't happen that right. way. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you, family, parents, friends, are praying for dad to kind of have this spiritual kind of reawakening. Could you have ever imagined that that would have led really relatively quickly to him <laughs> pursuing a life time of full-time ministry never is that what you were praying for never no. no yeah what do you attribute that to well because everything he does he does 100 percent, 110 percent. so we knew that if god got a hold of him yeah look out yeah we're going to see what god would do yeah so when dad surrendered to god's call on his life to pursue full-time ministry did you find yourself on board with that from the very beginning pretty much other than the fact that i knew what a lot of pastors wives were like mm -hmm. and I just didn't that was not who I was mm -hmm. so initially dad was a student pastoring in Cornhill and Cornhill is exactly what you picture when I say Cornhill uh, which meant you were um, still able to live in Moncton mm -hmm. and commute to church on Sundays and dad was gaining his pastoral experience yes. there but then this pastorate in Nova Scotia became an option that's about five hours away and meant moving from a growing, you know, kind of forward-thinking city where all of your family was to an extremely rural setting. 
How did you process that option? I don't think we really had a whole lot of time to think about that. Mm. We sold our house and we were out of there like in, I think, about three mm. weeks or so, maybe less than a month. And that's the summer I, that Dad had been directing at the, uh, camp, camp Wildwood, Christian Camp. Yes. Christian camp. So yeah. uh, I think it was kind of exciting, though. Mm. And you were, you and uh, Andrew were young enough that I don't know how, how much that would have impacted right. you. So as really in that decision, which was that first full-time <laughs> pastorate, um, which was going to be five hours away from everything you'd known. But as a couple, it seemed like you were on the same page that whatever opportunity presented itself, you had to be open to considering. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked with Dad about his years in Augusta. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about uh, with him around those years. And, and for that matter, there's a legislative record of his time in Augusta. But what could easily be overlooked is your role during those years. First of all, when he first came to you and said, uh, hey, I've got an idea, I have an interest <laughs> in running for the state house, do you remember what your response was? Oh, probably just, oh, here we go again. Something <laughs> like that. <laughs> for all the traveling back and forth to Augusta uh, for six years, you were the chauffeur. You did the driving partly because... Uh, well, partly because, let's be honest, Dad would say if you're going to drive from the passenger seat, you might as well drive from the driver's seat. Exactly. We have that right? agreement. Yes. So and you might I as well do behind have, the wheel. I do have a backseat driver's license in my there wallet. There you go. That's true. <laughs> but in reality, you drove a lot so Dad could read through thousands of pages of documents that he dealt with on a constant basis. He could prepare for whatever setting he was traveling to, depending on which direction you're going, either going to Augusta and preparing for that, or coming back to Ellsworth and preparing for work, church, whatever, and sometimes simply so Dad could get some rest, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So the, the role you played was a role that a lot of spouses played yes, did. Um, in that setting for people who get elected to these offices. And they, you do it in relative obscurity. Um, you didn't call any press conferences. And if you did, no one would show up to talk about whatever you wanted to talk about. <laughs> so this is just, I think, an example of the kind of support um, that you've provided over the years for whatever role dad found himself in, always willing to serve in the background to allow dad the opportunity to succeed and to grow his influence and be effective in all these different environments. Thank you for the way that you've served your husband, your family, your church, your community, and I think the kingdom of God and all of that with such consistency, with humility, and with enthusiasm. So thank you for being willing to sit down and talk with us. I know this isn't something that you ask for or uh, isn't your comfort zone, but I love you. You are greatly loved by your family, by your church family. We hold you in high regard. So would you join me in wishing mom a happy birthday? Uh, let's show her how much she's loved. You moved to the United States in 1985. Yes. And you were naturalized in what year? 1991. 91. That's relatively quick for a Canadian. It is. Right? Canadians are, sometimes take a long time to take out their U.S. citizenship. Yes. So naturalized in 91. And then in uh, 95, you'd been a citizen for less than five years. I'm doing my math. Less, not quite. Maybe yeah, five, not I, quite I would be right. You volunteered to serve on the, the Recreation Commission for the city of Ellsworth. Yes. Am I getting my dates right? You are. 
Uh, and, and the reason I did that, I had a real passion for uh, recreation, and I had spent um, five years in, uh, shortly after we were married, I'd spent five years as program director mm -hmm. uh, for the Moncton Recreation Department. Mm -hmm. And we had a big department, and we had a lot of playgrounds, we had a lot of rinks. We had 30 of them in the winter outdoor mm -hmm. rinks, mm -hmm. uh, plus our big stadiums. And then, um, yeah, we, it, was, it was interesting times. And uh, in the summertime, I had uh, about 105 uh, uh, teenage uh, high school and college students working for us mm -hmm. in our very summer program. So yeah. it was busy. It was really, really great. So about what, 20 years later, you're serving on the Rec Commission in Ellsworth? Well, I, yeah. Well, yeah. actually, when I got done the Recreation Commission in Moncton, I actually ran for office. That's right. At the Moncton City Council. I was not successful in, in getting elected but I was successful in building a really good uh, number of votes and mm -hmm. probably would have made it another time. That's probably the, where we'll put up a picture from that campaign. That would be really nice I'm of sure, you. I'm I don't sure know who do posed that. for that picture. Uh, <laughs> so back in the, the uh, 90s, late mm -hmm. 90s, mm -hmm. just left a seven-year pastorate in town, co-founding this fledgling church startup in the tennis courts at the Ellsworth, but that was then the Holiday Inn. Holiday Inn. Uh, yeah. And you run for city council, <laughs> which everyone kind of saw at that time as a good old boy institution, insiders club. Um, yeah. And you win easily. You're the outsider and you win easily. Then you win again in three years. Yes. You served as chairman, who serves as our mayor, uh, for one term in that first term? Yes, or? one, one yeah. term. Yeah. Um, that, and that position is chosen by the council. Mm -hmm. So that's all good, but somehow it's not enough. And uh, so you start talking to some people about running for the state house. Mm -hmm. The current legislator was term limited, mm -hmm. and uh, so the timing seemed right. So long story short, you ran for the state house in 2002, yeah. and again, won pretty easily. Mm -hmm. um, and just so everyone knows how this works, uh, Maine has a citizen legislature. It's a part-time job uh, f for very part-time money. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, mm. it's, it, yeah, it, it costs you money to serve in the legislature. Mm -hmm. The legislature is in session in Augusta from typically January to June-ish in the first year of a term, right? Mm -hmm. And then yep. typically January to March or April, the second year, depending on how much work they have to do. Correct. Yeah. Uh, sometimes might get called back in the fall to finish up some things. That's right. So, so from January to June, your typical week might look like church on Sunday morning, mm -hmm. drive to Augusta Sunday night, mm -hmm. committee work in Augusta in the morning, drive back to Ellsworth for city council in the evening, drive back to Augusta that night. That's Monday. Mm -hmm. Legislative work on Tuesday and Wednesday, mm -hmm. drive back to Ellsworth to host and lead your small group, yes. then drive back to Augusta that night. Legislature work on Thursday, sometimes often into Friday, mm -hmm. back to your northern home in Ellsworth for Friday and Saturday, and then and probably preaching on Sunday, and then the whole thing starts again. Mm. It's just a, a glamorous, jet-setting lifestyle. Well, you, there was one thing there that we didn't really include, and I yeah. had a full-time job. Full job. And so when I did come home on the weekend, I would go to my office That's rather right. than going to my house. That's right. And I would work until I knew it was time to go, say, to City Hall. That's right. And then I would call your mother when the city council meeting, or she'd watch it on TV. Yes. She'd know it was over. She'd pick me up at City Hall, and we'd head back to Augusta. So I would never even get to the house. 
Yeah. And your full-time employer was very gracious during this period Extremely. to allow you to get your hours in and uh, <clears throat> on, you know, on your schedule. And at the same time, you were able to uh, really advocate for your clients while yes. you were in the legislature. It worked so, both ways. Yes. It did, yeah. yeah. So anyway, at some point in this journey, um, in your, um, I think it was your second term in Augusta, you decided you really needed to step away from that responsibility with the city council. Mm -hmm. if I remember the time. Yes. Right. So you resigned from your seat on city council because now you're taking on a little bit more in your legislative role. By the third term, mm -hmm. you were ready then and have had the more availability mm -hmm. to say yes to mm -hmm. a leadership role. Mm -hmm. Yes. And again, that's chosen by your caucus. Yes. Right. So yep, you're the peers. serving as the assistant house minority leader. Correct. The house whip. The whip. For your third term in Augusta. Mm -hmm. I was by the state house one day just a couple months ago, and I still know the window where your office was. Yes. So it's yep. just, I'm grateful for that experience for nice. us as a family. Um, so you get elected to city council three times, to the state house three times. Then you decide that's enough for you. You walk away from that. You concentrate on some other things. Then a few years down the road, the itch comes back. Uh, at the urging of some of us who were closest to you in your inner circle, you run for city council again. And uh, you serve for two more terms, including one or two as chair. I can't two. remember. Two, yeah. And uh, so if I remember right, your last year on city council was 18? Yes. 2018. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Let's talk about your interest in public service. Um, because Ellsworth, as you said, isn't the first place you ran for public office. No. goes way back with you. Let's talk about your early interest. Okay. in elected office and public service. Okay. And I know it kind of started in high school. It did. Talk about that. Um, in my junior year of high school, uh, that's when they always elected the officers for the student council. I was in a high school of about 1,500 students, and I decided I was going to run for an office. Um, I was active in stu student affairs anyway, student council and student athletics and so on. So I ran for treasurer of the student council, and uh, I was elected. And then I was later elected as a life officer of that class. Mm -hmm. Anyway, my uh, folks, uh, both my mom and dad, especially my dad, uh, they were interested in politics, and my dad was involved in mm -hmm. uh, local politics and the, the provincial and federal politics too. And I don't know, it was in my blood. I don't mm -hmm. know what it is. It was mm -hmm. just something. Yeah, it was interesting uh, to get elected, and um, I don't really know where all the support came from, but I'm I'm grateful mm -hmm. for it, mm -hmm. and I had it mm -hmm. right through all those yeah. eight elections. Yeah, yeah. So looking back now, it's been nearly um, 20 years since you first ran for the legislature. Oh uh, yeah, 24 years. Yeah, 24 years since you first ran for city council. Yes. How would you say your faith? Your Christian beliefs have influenced the way that you've just you've conducted yourself, the causes you stood for, the way you treated people in your time in elected office. Well, one of the things that I'm most proud of, and, and I use the term loosely, I don't want to, uh, you know, inject pride here, but um, I was awarded uh, a um, legislative award. Uh, from a group here in the state of Maine that uh, they, their sole purpose 
is to serve people with developmental mm -hmm. uh, disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a great honor. They had a big banquet in, in, um, in Portland at one of the big hotels. And to get this uh, recognition was really mm -hmm. something that I cherish mm -hmm. and still do to this day. I think it's interesting you brought up that recognition for your um, kind of your legislative work on behalf of the, the developmentally disabled. Yeah. And like people who like have no voice of their own, mm -hmm. in some cases, literally, right? Yeah, so that's true. If, if as believers, when we are actually like caring for who Je the ones Jesus called the least of these, mm -hmm. I think like that may be our highest calling. Mm. And I think when we are actually exercising that, people take note because mm -hmm. it's so unusual. Politics, are, it's self-serving for the most part. That's why most of us, you know, we get so disgusted with it. Mm -hmm. So when, it's, when, it, when engagement in, in a public office yeah. is not self-serving, mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. for the benefit of those who have no voice, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is noticed. Mm -hmm. And I think um, when people... It's one thing for the, an organization to present you with an award, but mm -hmm. it's when the people of that organization know you as mm -hmm. a person, mm -hmm. they understand that it's an outflow of your faith. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that's true. Mm -hmm. I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, a few weeks ago, you know this, I wrote a letter to Governor Mills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, because thanks to your time in Augusta, I, I came to see people in government, I'm going to say especially in you know, state and local government, as humans, as real people. You treated them that way, regardless of where you sat on issues and where, regardless of where you sat in the room. Mm -hmm. you, you treated people um, with dignity. Whether, and so um, I've just come to the place where I, I, I'm, I'm trying to make myself and remind myself to see those people that are oftentimes just um, faces on a TV screen or faces on a news story uh, to see them as humans with mm -hmm. strengths and weaknesses, positions I agree with and positions I disagree with, mm -hmm. all in the same person, right? right. So right. anyway, I wrote a letter to Governor Mills um, really because I was kind of tired of seeing friends of mine, um, including people in our church, uh, doing nothing but criticize her, mostly on Facebook because that's really easy to do, sure. um, over this last year and a half. Mm -hmm. So I felt compelled to write a letter actually to encourage her and to let her know I prayed for her often, and even though I'm not in agreement with all of her policies or her positions, I'm grateful for her willingness to serve in that capacity. No one signed up to lead a state through the COVID situation, Absolutely not. right? So I know you served in the legislature with our governor. We, I did. Yeah, you served, I think you both served the same three terms. That sounds right. Yeah, the yeah. 121st, 22nd, and 23rd. And I served with her brother, Peter. Yeah. So, well, mm -hmm. I got a really nice uh, handwritten note from her in response to my letter, and she had something to say about you. Uh-oh. And she, <laughs> she says, I remember your father very well, an honorable man and a worthy legislator. So I've told people for years that um, you served three terms in the legislature, serving in leadership, spent time in the belly of the beast, and left Augusta with your integrity intact. So, what would you say to anyone, I'm gonna say regardless of their party affiliation mm -hmm. or their political leanings, 
what would you say to someone who's interested in getting involved in the arena of government and local politics? I'd say remember your humble beginnings and um, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. I think that's a biblical precept. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, go in it with the idea not what you can get out of it or how many people you can walk over, mm -hmm. but how can you work with people to get things done uh, you're not going to get everything done mm -hmm. that you want or that your supporters want. Mm -hmm. You're even going to disappoint some of them sometime. Uh, but you have to be, rise above that. You have to be a bigger person than that. Mm -hmm. And again, I'd say if you have faith, uh, then walk by faith. Mm -hmm. And um, when I went to Augusta, I really didn't do a whole lot of things differently. Mm -hmm. I was in a different arena. I was in a bigger uh, situation, and it affected more people, so every decision affected a lot of people, but um, I still ran by the uh, principles of faith that I believe in. I think my core principles were not at all moved one way or the other. Well, having seen you in so many different scenarios and environments, um, I've known you all my life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We've been doing ministry together officially for 32 years, but in reality, my experience in ministry with you goes way back to my childhood. Um, all those opportunities I was given as, um, you know, like a preteen and a teenager and a college student to be involved in significant areas of ministry, uh, for whether that was carrying chairs to set up for Sunday school or carrying chairs to tear down Sunday school and set up for, ch for, school, for school the next day yeah. or Yes. emptying the communion cups after a Sunday evening service mm -hmm. or serving in kids ministry and doing puppets or whatever. Uh, we go way back when it comes to uh, yeah. ministry too. Mm -hmm. So I've seen you in all these roles as pastor, as principal, as college president for a short time, as a doctoral student, as a city councilor, as a state rep, um, as a husband, a father, grandfather, great-grandfather. And if I were to sum up your response to that, typically the word that comes to my mind is grateful, that you are grateful for the opportunities that God's given you, uh, for the stories of God's power and our weakness, um, for His grace, His faithfulness. And as grateful as you are for all of that, what God has done, we are grateful for you. Um, happy 75th birthday. Thank you. Um, I love you. I speak on behalf of our whole family. We love you. Um, we, your church family loves you. We hold you in high regard. Thank Would you, you so join much. me in wishing Pastor Bob a happy 75th birthday?